my foot got trapped in it, and then I did like a backflip off of it and broke my foot. I think we were feeding our birds one time, and they never knew what the cave was haunted. But I found it and tried to give it to her, but she said no. It's time for the apple seed, an hour filled with stories for you and your family. In every episode of the show, we listen to great storytellers tell great stories. And we hope that the stories we bring you spark memories that you can share with the people that you love. That kind of storytelling can entertain, inspire, and even strengthen you and your family. I'm your host, Sam Payne, and today on the show, we're gonna bring you some stories that might just give you the shivers. But if you're listening with kids, don't worry. Nothing on the show is gonna be too spooky. And besides, sometimes kids actually wanna have a good, fun scare, don't they? I mean, that's how I was when I was a kid. As we were discussing this episode, our producer, Brian Tanner, told us how his seven-year-old daughter will often jump off the couch and run to the other room when she she senses that a movie is heading toward a creepy moment. But once she's out of the room, she can't help but peek her head around the corner to see if it actually was as scary as she expected. Well, our first storyteller today is Donna Washington. And in her story, she really captures that tension that a child might feel when they think something spooky might be hiding in their closet. He wanted to go look. He did not want to go look. (laughs) He really wanted to go look. He did not want to go look. (laughs) He had to go look, because you know how it is, right? (laughs) Just a moment from the story Red Red Lips, and we promise you that you are going to want to look. And after that, I'll share a personal memory about a good scare in today's entry in the Radio Family Journal. And we'll take you back in time to one of the most notorious Halloween stunts ever pulled. It's a radio drama that for one night in 1938 made many people believe that their planet was under attack from Martian invaders. Incredible as it may seem, both the observations of science and the evidence of our eyes lead to the inescapable assumption that those strange beings who landed in the Jersey farmlands tonight are the vanguard of an invading army from the planet Mars. <laughs> Just a moment from The War of the Worlds, the notorious radio broadcast masterminded by a very young Orson Welles before he took on Hollywood. And many of you have probably already heard about The War of the Worlds, but we suspect that not as many of you have actually heard The War of the Worlds broadcast. So it'll be a treat to listen to some highlights from it together. And that's coming up a little later in the hour. Well, how about we get started? We got a Donna Washington story that's spooky, but not too spooky. And we think your whole family will love it. Let's head off to the Appleseed Performance Studio along with Donna Washington and our terrific studio audience. Away we go. Is there anyone in here who remembers being afraid of the dark when they were little? Mm-hmm. How many of you were not afraid of the dark, but you liked the nightlight? <laughs> How many of you were not afraid of the dark, but you liked the closet light on? <laughs> How many of you were not afraid of the dark, but you liked the hall light to be on? <laughs> How many of you were not afraid of the dark, but you liked the bathroom light to be on? <laughs> How many of you were not afraid of the dark, but sometimes the stuff in the dark made you a little nervous? (laughs) I was a kid who loved being in the dark and really freaking myself out. My favorite story was Hansel and Gretel, and I have an old record cover, like, you know, big record, and, and the album that it came in, the picture on the front was terrifying. And, and it was this big gingerbread house with all the jeweled gumdrops and everything. And you see these two little blonde-haired moppets running towards the house. <laughs> and the door was cracked. And there was a giant head <laughs> peeking through. Anyway, I was always terrified of that. <laughs> and I would stare at it before it was time to go to bed. I don't know what that was about, but I was willing myself to not be scared. And then I would turn the light off, and I'd be in bed going, ah. 
So I loved this story when I encountered it because of that, because of the fear factor. It's called Red Red Lips. Once there was a boy who was terrified of the dark. He slept with the lights on every single night. His mother said to him, you need to turn the lights off. He said, nah. She said, you are getting too old to sleep with the lights on. Nah. If you do not sleep with the lights off, I'm not going to let you visit your grandmother. I saw her yesterday. <laughs> if you don't sleep with the lights off, I am not going to let your friends spend the night. That's okay. I will see them at school. <laughs> you know what? Forget it. You are too old. Three nights from now, I'm going to turn the lights off. Really? Yes. Okay. First night, the lights were on, but he didn't sleep. He spent all night staring at his dresser. Because when the lights are on, you can see what's up there. But if you turn the lights off, there are just shadows up there. And if a car goes by, vroom! It looks like something is running across your dresser. He spent all night staring at his dresser, wondering what it was going to look like. <gasps> he got up in the morning at dark circles under his eyes. Second night, lights were on. He did not sleep. He spent all night looking under the bed. Because when the lights are on, you can see what's under there. But if you turn the lights off. Something could reach out. <laughs> Boom! And then that's it. He's been all night. He got out of bed in the morning. His dark circles had dark circles. <laughs> Third night, lights are on. What is the scariest place in your room? What is it? Say it loud. What do you think it is? That's right. Do you know why your closet is so scary? Because your clothes are shaped like people. <laughs> if they weren't shaped like that, you couldn't put them on. But if it's shadowy, it looks like there's arms and legs in your closet. <laughs> he spent all night staring into his closet. Because, well, when the lights are on, you can see your pants and your shirts. But when you turn the lights off, somebody be peeking at you right from the darkness. <laughs> He spent all night staring so much into his closet, his eyes almost fell out of his head. He got up in the morning. He had dark circles all the way around his eyes. He looked like a raccoon. <laughs> and then it was time to turn the lights out. His mother put him in bed. She kissed him. She said, good night. He said, good night. <laughs> and she turned off the lights. And the little boy lay in bed like this. <gasps> And across the room, he heard a sound. Crackle. Ah! <laughs> he heard it again. Crackle, crackle. <laughs> he wanted to go look. He did not want to go look. He really wanted to go look. He did not want to go look. He had to go look, because you know how it is, right? <laughs> so he went over there. He looked. <laughs> There was a woman staring in at him. And she had black, black hair and green, green skin and red, red lips and long, red fingernails. And she said, little boy. <laughs> and he said, what? <laughs> and she said, do you know what I do with my red, red lips and my long red fingernails? And he said, no! And he ran back to the bed, pulled the covers over his head and said, Mommy! His mother came running in. She turned the lights on. She said, what? He said, his mother looked. There was nothing there. He said, she was there. His mother said, no, she wasn't. You were just dreaming. Go back to sleep. Click. <laughs> Little boy lay in bed. <sighs> then he heard it. Crackle, crackle, crackle. You guys can do this with me. Here we go. Crackle, crackle, crackle. <laughs> He heard it again. Here we go. Crackle, crackle. Ah! 
wanted to go look. He did not want to go look. <laughs> you know he had to go look, right? <laughs> he went over there. There she was staring in at him. And she had black, black hair and green, green skin and red, red lips and long red fingernails. And she said, little boy. And he said, what? And she said, do you know what I do with my red, red lips and my long red fingernails? And he said, no, and I do not want to know. He ran back to the bed. He pulled the covers up. He said, mama. The first time your mother comes in, she's all nice, isn't she? <laughs> the second time depends entirely on what she was doing. <laughs> she turned the lights on. What? It, okay, she's gone, but she was there. No, no, she wasn't there. Look, there is nothing in this room scarier than what is in your imagination. Yes, there is. No, there isn't. Go to sleep and do not call me back in here unless there's actually an emergency. Okay. <laughs> Good night. And she shut the lights out. Now I gotta tell you, at this point, that little boy was tired. He'd been awake three nights in a row. He'd been running back and forth to the window, scared out of his mind. He was ready to go to sleep. And he got all comfy and down in his blankets and he pulled his covers up. And just as he was getting ready to go to sleep, you know what he heard, right? Mm -hmm. Do it with me. Here we go. Crackle, crackle. Ah. <laughs> he heard it again. Crackle, crackle. Oh. <laughs> he wanted to go look. <laughs> he did not want to go look. <laughs> he really wanted to go. He did not want to go look. He pulled the sheets back. He went over to the window. There she was, staring it at him. If you remember what she looks like, you can say it with me. Ready? She's got black, black hair and green, green skin and red, red lips. Long, red fingernails. And she said, little boy. And he said, what? <laughs> Do you know what I do with my red, red lips and my long red fingernails? <laughs> he thought about what his mama said, that there was nothing in this room scarier than what was in his imagination. He said, <laughs> what, what, what do you do with your red, red lips and your long, red fingernails? <laughs> you wanna know? <laughs> no? Okay. Okay, what do you do? She raised those long red fingernails up to her red, red lips. And she... <laughs> Little boy said, is that it? <laughs> The little boy put the shade down, got back in bed, pulled the covers up, and went back to sleep. Because his mother was right. There was nothing in his room scarier than what was in his imagination. And the same thing is true for you. So tonight, sleep tight. Turn out the light. <laughs> Thank you. 
That was Donna Washington with Red Red Lips. How's everyone doing after that? Not too scary, right? It was just like the mother in the story said. There was nothing scarier in the room than the things in the child's own imagination. Not that the things in the child's own imagination can't be terrifying. That story was just fun and games. But you and I have both been in situations out in the real world where there really are things that can make us feel uneasy or even frightened. And I'm talking about things both real and imagined. And in those moments when you have felt genuinely afraid, how were you able to find comfort? Well, I know that for me, I find comfort in talking to people who love me. And sometimes I just want their advice. But other times, I want to hear what they have done in times when they were afraid. In other words, I want to hear a story about when they felt like I'm feeling and how they got through it. In that storytelling, there's a lot of love between us. It takes a lot of love for me to ask for the story, and it takes a lot of love for them to give it. And after the sharing of the story... The feeling that I'm left with, well, frankly, it reminds me of a verse in the Bible, in the book of John, that says, There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. Those storytelling moments are filled with love. And when they're over, I'm not afraid anymore. And I'm ready to face the things that had frightened me so much. Chances are, the things that have scared you are things that your loved ones are facing too. So next time you're around the dinner table, don't be afraid to ask for some of those stories or to share some of your own. It's not just fun. It can help. Of course, some scary stories are just for fun, like Red Red Lips. And in just a moment, a little talk back with our producers, Heather and Brian, about that story, followed by that trip back in time we promised to one of the spookiest nights from the golden age of radio. That's coming up here on The Appleseed. I'm Sam Payne. our pleasure to hear the story Red Red Lips from Donna <laughs> I think you mean... Oh, is that what it was? Okay, sorry. You heard Because you got to use the fingernails, You got to use the fingernails. Yeah, sound effects there from Heather Bigley (laughs) and Brian Tanner, our producers. And uh, so fun to hear that. uh, Call it a scary story? Let's call it a scary story. Yeah. Told in front of our terrific studio audience in the Appleseed studio. And uh, here we are to to engage in just a little bit of talkback about that story. Guys, where does a story like that take you? You know, uh, one of the details that I really loved uh, that Donna Washington said before she got into the story, she was saying that she had this uh, record cover, was it, with Hansel and Gretel? (laughs) And it was some kind of, like, freaky picture, you know, and she would sit there and stare at it, even though it freaked her out. Like, she liked staring at it, you know? And I'm like, (laughs) I think that that is a sensation that a lot of kids— can uh, relate to. It's just like, this scares me, but I want to keep watching it. You know, I think about a movie that I really loved when I was a kid, even Uh though it kind of freaked me out, was The Dark Crystal. You know, I had a VHS copy of it, and there are these, I don't know if you guys have seen it, but it's it's Jim Henson thing, and it's puppets, but it's not the Muppets. Right, right. The the designs are grotesque, and they're, it's it's quite frightening in places. There are these characters called the Skeksis. The Skeksis. And they're their, their whole bodies are just, you know, and there's a scene where one of them dies and their body just kind of crumbles in this disgusting way. And it totally freaked me out, but it was just like, I would watch it over and over Hearing and over you again. talk about it is is like maybe even more uh, thrilling than seeing the film. More upsetting, <laughs> yeah. Um, that actually made me think of the Thriller video. Thriller! Oh, yeah. Um, which I first saw at a, um, I think I was at a sleepover. Yeah. And it might, I might have been in fifth grade or something, um, or maybe a little younger. And I had to leave the room. 
Mm-hmm. Like, I literally had to get up and, like, go be, find the parents of the child I was spending the night with and just sort of stand in their presence because uh, there were zombies. It was mm-hmm. totally, totally upsetting. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and then over time, I would slowly, like, catch it on MTV and then watch a little bit more. Um, I don't like to be scared. I didn't like it as a kid. I don't like it now. So <laughs> it's very hard for me. Red um, Red Lips is built in such a cool, I mean, in such a classic uh, way, right? It's a classic scary story way where you get this sort of refrain yes. that mm-hmm. builds and builds and builds to this impossibly tense place and then there's a punchline. Yeah. Yep. Donna Washington's story, Red Red Lips, did bring back a memory for me that I'd like to share as today's entry in the Radio Family Journal. The Radio Family Journal with Sam Payne. A tiny little story for you and your family. Right when you need it. On the Appleseed. Third grade, October, autumn in the air, and it was time for recess. So we all left the halls of Alpine Elementary School for the playground. Our jackets were on, the schoolyard was walled on its east side by the rich red, orange, and yellow leaves of the sycamores and maples and oaks that lined the creek. A perfect autumn recess. And it was monkey bars and four square and something we used to call 500. And then the bell rang and we all wiped our noses on our sleeves in the chilly air and went back through the doors of the school. But things were different than when we'd left. Sometime during recess, the windows of the classroom had been covered with black paper. The lights were all out, save a couple of dim candles burning on a table in the center of the room. I know, candles in the classroom. This was a long time ago. Next to the candles was a turntable, a record player, and on the record player was the dark disc of a vinyl record. At my elementary school in those days, all three third-grade classes shared a room. Miss Phillips' class and Miss Dokus's class and Mrs. Searle's class, all of us in an enormous room. And into that great big dark room we filed, maybe 75 of us, and we were invited to sit on the floor around that record player among the candles. And all the fourth graders filed into the room, too, probably 75 or so of them. Mr. Diamond's class, Mr. Thompson's class, and Mr. Bodell's class. And now there were 150 kids sitting around that record player with the candles burning. And what on earth was going to happen? Well, Mr. Bodell waded through the sea of kids, and all illuminated by candlelight, he clicked on the record player. The candles guttered for a moment, And then came the sound of the record through the speakers, thunder and lightning, sound effects, and a spooky wind, and then a low voice telling the story of the golden arm. Do you know that story? It's one of the classics, and there are versions and versions and versions of it. Usually in the story, a guy marries a beautiful wife, and for one reason or another, one of her arms is made out of solid gold. And in the story, she tragically dies for one reason or another, but not before asking to be buried with her golden arm. And the husband, unable to get the solid gold arm out of his mind, goes to the graveyard in the middle of the night and digs up her coffin and takes the arm. Home he goes, shivering with guilt and fright, and he goes to bed with the golden arm right there in bed with him. And as he lies in bed, he hears someone coming into the house and up the stairs, and the bedroom door creaks open, and there, looking at him with wide, spooky eyes, is the ghost of his wife, and he looks at her and he says, what has happened to your rosy, rosy cheeks? All withered and wasted away, she says in a spooky voice. What has happened to your rosy, rosy lips, he asks, terrified. All withered and wasted away, in that same spooky voice. And what has happened to your silky dark hair? All withered and wasted away. What have you done with your golden, golden arm? 
You have it! (laughs) Well, that's the story, a version of it anyway. And again, it's an oldie. Mark Twain used to tell a version of that story on speaking tours in the 1800s. And that last line, you have it, is the jump line in the story. And it cackled out of the speakers of the record player, and the lightning crashed, and 150 third graders and fourth graders jumped right out of their skin. And everybody had a good laugh. And the lights came back on, and we all, a little weak in the knees and trembly, got back to math and social studies and English and science, and I will always remember that day. Had I listened to that record alone, well, it might have killed me. I hate being scared when I'm alone, but feeling the shivers with all your friends and classmates, well, that was something we could survive because we were together. And there's a lot that you can survive if you face it together. We were all better friends, I think. At least we were for one afternoon following a perfect Autumn Recess. The Radio Family Journal of Sam Payne. A tiny little story for you and your family. Right when you need it, on the Appleseed. Thanks for joining me for that entry in the Radio Family Journal. It's such a pleasure to talk around the table about the Donna Washington story, Red, Red Lips, with our producers, Dr. Brian Tanner, Dr. Heather Bigley. Guys, thanks for joining me. (laughs) 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 Lots more coming up on the Appleseed. I'm Sam Payne. joining us on the Appleseed today. We've already heard Red Red Lips from Donna Washington, a tale that probably didn't send any of you running out of the room in terror, but funny and scary nevertheless. And now we're going to revisit a radio broadcast that actually did send some people running in terror. On the night before Halloween in 1938, a 23-year-old radio and theater director named Orson Welles and his acting troupe called the Mercury Theater on the Air performed a modernized radio adaptation of The War of the Worlds by H.G. Wells on live radio. Today, when you hear the name Orson Welles, maybe you think of the 1941 film Citizen Kane. A lot of people to this day call that one of the greatest movies ever made. But Orson Welles was far from a household name at the time of the War of the Worlds radio broadcast. However, many of those that heard it believed that it was not a radio drama performed by actors, but an actual invasion of deadly aliens from the planet Mars. Now, the front pages of newspapers across the country the morning after the broadcast were filled with sensational stories about the mass panic induced by the program. The New York Daily News, for example, had a giant headline splashed across the front page declaring, Fake Radio War Stirs Terror Through U.S. Now, the media coverage it received at the time gave the program a notorious reputation that endures to this day. But recently, some media scholars have found some convincing evidence that the scenes of chaos reported at the time were greatly exaggerated. The truth is, fewer people listened to the broadcast than many people imagine these days. But regardless, more than 80 years later, the War of the Worlds remains a compelling and occasionally chilling hour of radio. And we'd love to play some highlights for you. The broadcast starts with an announcement, clear as day, that this is a work of fiction. Columbia Broadcasting System and its affiliated stations present Orson Welles and the Mercury Theater on the Air in The War of the Worlds by H.G. Wells. What follows is an introduction read by Orson Welles himself. Now, it's based closely on passages from the original novel, The War of the Worlds, written in the 1890s by H.G. Wells. Now, by the way, there's no relation between Orson Welles and H.G. Wells. They don't even spell their last names the same, even though they pronounce them the same. It's just a coincidence. In any case, here's that introduction. Ladies and gentlemen, the director of the Mercury Theater and star of these broadcasts, Orson Welles. We know now that in the early years of the 20th century, this world was being watched closely by intelligences greater than man's. 
yet as mortal as his own. We know now that as human beings busied themselves about their various concerns, they were scrutinized and studied, perhaps almost as narrowly as a man with a microscope might scrutinize the transient creatures that swarm and multiply in a drop of water. Now, as you can hear, anyone who had turned on their radio at the top of the hour would clearly understand that they were listening to a radio play. However, at this point, Orson Welles throws the audience a major curveball. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. From the Meridian Room in the Park Plaza Hotel in New York City, we bring you the music of Raymond Raquello and his orchestra. With the touch of the Spanish, Raymond Raquello leads off with La Compensita. Suddenly, this doesn't sound like War of the Worlds at all. It sounds like a live broadcast of instrumental music. So if you're wondering how so many people thought that aliens were actually attacking the Earth from this broadcast, it's because many of them missed the opening minutes where it was explicitly stated that this was just a radio play. They may have been just flipping the dial on their radios, looking for some good music to listen to. But just as the music was getting started, the listeners got an unexpected interruption. Ladies and gentlemen, we interrupt our program of dance music to bring you a special bulletin from the Intercontinental Radio News. At 20 minutes before 8 central time, Professor Farrell of the Mount Jennings Observatory, Chicago, Illinois, reports observing several explosions of incandescent gas occurring at regular intervals on the planet Mars. The spectroscope indicates the gas to be hydrogen and moving toward the Earth with enormous velocity. We now return you to the music of Ramon Raquello playing for you in the Meridian Room of the Park Plaza Hotel situated in downtown New York. Now, the listeners in 1938 may have been thinking, explosions on Mars? What does that have to do with me? Oh, well, must not be that big of a deal because, well, we're back to the music, right? However, a moment later, an announcer cuts back in with another announcement. They're going to feature a live interview with a noted astronomer from Princeton named Professor Richard Pearson about the strange occurrence on the surface of the planet Mars. Professor Pearson is, by the way, played by Orson Welles himself, though it's likely the audience would not have known that. We are ready now to take you to the Princeton Observatory at Princeton, where Carl Phillips, our commentator, will interview Professor Richard Pearson, famous astronomer. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. This is Carl Phillips speaking to you from the observatory at Princeton. Professor, may I begin our questions? Any time, Mr. Phillips. Professor, would you please tell our radio audience exactly what you see as you observe the planet Mars through your telescope? Nothing unusual at the moment, Mr. Phillips. How do you account for these gas eruptions occurring on the surface of the planet at regular intervals? Phillips, I cannot account for it. By the way, Professor, for the benefit of our listeners... How far is Mars from the Earth? Approximately 40 million miles. <laughs> well, that seems a safe enough distance. Uh, just a moment, ladies and gentlemen. Someone has just handed Professor Pearson a message. Professor, may I read the message to the listening audience? Certainly, Mr. Ladies and gentlemen, I shall read you a wire addressed to Professor Pearson from Dr. Gray of the Natural History Museum, New York. Quote, 9.15 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Plasmograph registered shock of almost... Earthquake intensity occurring within a radius of 20 miles of Princeton. Please investigate. Signed, Lloyd Gray, Chief of Astronomical Division. Unquote. Professor Pearson, could this occurrence possibly have something to do with the disturbances observed on the planet Mars? Oh, hardly, Mr. Phillips. This is probably a meteorite of unusual size, and its arrival at this particular time is merely a coincidence. However, we shall conduct a search as soon as daylight permits. Thank you, Professor. We are returning you now to our New York studio. Well, those observations about the planet Mars still seem rather removed from the listeners' lives. But the news that a giant meteor landed in New Jersey, well, that hits closer to home. And we're about to hear another news bulletin with more details about that. Now nearer home comes a special bulletin from Trenton, New Jersey. It is reported that at 8.50 p.m., a huge flaming object, believed to be a meteorite, fell on a farm in the neighborhood of Grover's Mill, New Jersey, 22 miles from Trenton. The flash in the sky was visible within a radius of several hundred miles, and the noise of the impact was heard as far north as Elizabeth. We have dispatched a special mobile unit to the scene, and we'll have our commentator, Carl Phillips, give you a word picture of the scene as soon as he can reach there from Princeton. 
In the meantime, we take you to the Hotel Martinet in Brooklyn, where Bobby Millette and his orchestra are offering a program of dance music. Now, these emergency interruptions are really starting to pile up. And soon we're going to hear another one from the site where the meteor hit. We take you now to Grover's Mills, New Jersey. Ladies and gentlemen, this is Carl Phillips again, out at the Wilmot Farm, Grover's Mill, New Jersey. Professor Pearson and myself made the 11 miles from Princeton in 10 minutes. Well, I hardly know where to begin, so paint for you a word picture of a strange scene before my eyes, but something out of a modern Arabian night. Well, I just got here. I haven't had a chance to look around yet. I guess that's it. Yes, I guess that's the thing directly in front of me. Half buried in a vast pit. Must have struck with terrific force. The ground is covered with splinters of a tree. It must have struck on its way down. But I can see the object itself doesn't look very much like a meteor. At least not the meteors I've seen. It looks more like a huge cylinder. I wish I could convey the atmosphere, the background of this fantastic scene. Hundreds of cars are parked in a field in back of us, and the police are trying to rope off the roadway leading into the farm, but it's no use. They're breaking right through. Cars' headlights throw an enormous spotlight on the pit where the object's half buried. Now, some of the more daring souls now are venturing near the edge. Yeah, the silhouettes stand out against the metal sheen. <laughs> One man wants to touch the thing. He's having an argument with a policeman. Now, the policeman wins. Now, ladies and gentlemen, there's something I haven't mentioned in all this excitement, but it's becoming more distinct. Perhaps you've caught it already on your radio. Listen, please. Do you hear it? It's a curious humming sound that seems to come from inside the object. I'll uh, move the microphone nearer. Here. Now, we're not more than 25 feet away. Uh, can you hear it now? Uh, Professor Pearson. Yes, Mr. Uh, can you tell us the meaning of that scraping noise inside the thing? Possibly the unequal cooling of its surface. I see. Do you still think it's a meteor, Professor? I don't know what to think. The uh, metal casing is definitely extraterrestrial. Uh, not found on this Earth. Friction with the Earth's atmosphere usually tears holes in a meteorite. This thing is smooth and... You can see a cylindrical uh, shape. Something's happening... Ladies and gentlemen, this is terrific. This end of the thing is beginning to flake off. The top is beginning to rotate like a screw, and this thing must be hollow. He's moving! Keep those men back! Keep those idiots back! Come on, Come on, Come on, Come on, Come on, Come Someone calling someone or something. I can see turning out of that black hole two luminous disks. The eyes, it might be a face, might be almost... But heavens, something wriggling out of the shadow like a gray snake. Now it's another one and another one and another one. They look like tentacles to me. I can see the thing's body. Now it's large, large as a bear. It glistens like wet leather, but face... Ladies and gentlemen, it's indescribable, but I can hardly force myself to keep looking at it. It's so awful. The eyes are black and they gleam like a serpent. The mouth is a kind of V-shape with saliva dripping from its rimless lips. It seems to oh, quiver and pulsate, and the monster or whatever it is can hardly move. It seems weighed down by uh, possibly gravity or something. The thing's rising up now, and the crowd falls back. It seems plenty. The most extraordinary experience, ladies and gentlemen, I can't find words. And, well, I'll pull this microphone with me as I talk. I'll... I have to stop the description so I can take a new position. Hold on, will you please? I'll be right back in a minute. We now return you to Carl Phillips at Grover's Mill. Ladies and gentlemen, my aunt. Ladies and gentlemen. Ladies and gentlemen, here I am, back of a stone wall that adjoins Mr. Wilmer's garden. From here, I get a sweep of the whole scene. I'll give you every detail as long as I can talk and as long as I can see. The more state police have arrived. They're drawing up a cordon in front of the pit. About 30 of them. No need to push the crowd back now. They're willing to keep their distance. The captain's conferring with someone. Can't quite see who. Ah, oh, yes, I believe it's Professor Pearson. 
Yes, it is. Now, now they've parted, and the professor moves around one side, studying the object while the captain and two policemen advance with something in their hands. I can see it now. It's a white handkerchief tied to a pole. Flag of truce. If those creatures know what that means, what anything means. Wait a minute. Something's happening. A humped shape is rising out of the pit. I can make out a small beam of light against a mirror. What's that? There's a jet of flame springing from the mirror and it leaps right at the advancing men. It strikes them head on. Oh, Lord, they're turning into flames. Ah! Now the whole field's caught up by the woods. The fires are gas heading everywhere. Coming this way now, about 20 yards to my right. Ladies and gentlemen, due to circumstances beyond our control, we are unable to continue the broadcast from Grover's Mill. Evidently, there's some difficulty with our field transmission. However, we will return to that point at the earliest opportunity. We continue now with our piano interlude. <laughs> Not an alien attack, we must reiterate. But maybe now you can see why someone tuning into this broadcast midway through might be terrified and think it was real. That's how it was in 1938. People were accustomed to radio dramas by this time, but they'd never heard one like this. This was presented as though it were a real news broadcast, complete with announcers and reporters and eyewitnesses and even transmission problems supposedly caused by this alien attack. The announcers later inform us that many of the people at Grover's Mill were killed when the Martians unleashed a heat ray on the crowd. There is, however, at least one survivor, and that's the astronomer, Professor Pearson. Remember him? And at this point in the 1938 broadcast, things really start to speed up. There will be no more cuts back to the studio for pleasant orchestra music. The announcers tell us that the military has taken over control of their broadcasting services, and we'll jump back in just as a military officer announces that he thinks his unit will bring a swift end to this invasion. This is Captain Lansing of the Signal Corps, attached to the state militia, now engaged in military operations in the vicinity of Grover's Mill. Situation arising from the reported presence of certain individuals of unidentified nature is now under complete control. One of the companies is deploying on the left flank. A quick thrust and it'll all be over. Now, wait a minute. I see something on top of the cylinder. No, no, it's nothing but a shadow. Now the troops are on the edge of the Wilmot Farm. 7,000 armed men closing in on an old metal tube. A tub, rather. Well, wait, that wasn't a shadow. It's something moving. Solid metal. Kind of a shield-like affair rising up out of the cylinder. Going higher and higher. What? It's, it's standing on legs. Actually rearing up on a sort of metal framework. Now it's reaching above the trees and the searchlights are on it. Hold on. So it isn't just a tube after all. It's some kind of giant machine that the Martians can pilot as they cut a path of destruction across the land. After the machine takes out the entire army unit in seconds with its heat ray, the announcers must plainly state the reality of the situation to the listening public. Ladies and gentlemen, I have a grave announcement to make. Incredible as it may seem, both the observations of science and the evidence of our eyes lead to the inescapable assumption that those strange beings who landed in the Jersey farmlands tonight are the vanguard of an invading army from the planet Mars. The battle which took place tonight at Grover Mills has ended in one of the most startling defeats ever suffered by an army in modern times. 7,000 men armed with rifles and machine guns pitted against a single fighting machine of the invaders from Mars. 120 known survivors. The rest strewn over the battle area from Grover's Mill to Plainsboro, crushed and trampled to death under the metal feet of the monster, or burned to cinders by its heat ray. Reports are pouring in that more and more of these machines are landing across the face of the land. And in addition to their heat rays, they're releasing a black smoke that instantly poisons all within its reach. Now, the machine that laid waste to a rural area in New Jersey is now headed for New York City, where it will meet up with four other colossal Martian machines for a coordinated attack. I'm speaking from the roof of Broadcasting Building. I'm speaking from the roof of Broadcasting Building, New York City. The bells you hear are ringing to warn the people to evacuate the city as Martians approach. 
Estimated in the last two hours, three million people have moved out along the roads to the north. No more defenses. Our army is wiped out. Artillery, Air Force, everything wiped out. This may be the last broadcast. We'll stay here to the end. People are holding service here below us in the cathedral. Wait a minute. The, the enemy is now in sight above the palisades. Five, five great machines. First one is crossing the river. I can see it from here, waiting, waiting the Hudson like a man waiting through a brook. A bulletin is handed me. Martian cylinders are falling all over the country. One outside of Buffalo, one in Chicago, St. Louis. Seem to be timed in space. Now the first machine reaches the shore. He stands watching, looking over the city. Steel cowlish head is even with the skyscrapers. He waits for the others. They rise like a line of new towers on the city's west side. Now they're lifting their metal hands. This is the end now. Smoke comes out, black smoke drifting over the city. Now the smoke's crossing 6th Avenue. 5th Avenue. A uh, hundred yards away. It's, it's 50 feet. listening to a CBS presentation of Orson Welles and the Mercury Theater on the Air in an original dramatization of The War of the Worlds by H.G. Wells. The performance will continue after a brief intermission. This is the Columbia Broadcasting System. <laughs> Let's take a breath after that. After 40 uninterrupted minutes, that 1938 broadcast takes its first break. It's also the first time since the opening seconds that the listener would have heard that this is merely a radio drama. Now, the remainder of the program is really a lot different from what we heard before. It's more like a conventional radio drama, and it's driven by Professor Richard Pearson, that astronomer played by Orson Welles. The astronomer has survived both the alien attacks and their occupation of the Earth, and he records his thoughts in his diary. As I set down these notes on paper, I am obsessed by the thought that I may be the last living man on Earth. My wife, my colleagues, my students, my books, my observatory, my... my world. Where are they? Did they ever exist? The professor makes his way into the heart of the deserted city of New York. It's full of empty streets and empty stores and destruction everywhere he looks. But then something unexpected catches his eye. Suddenly my eyes were attracted to the immense flock of black birds that hovered directly below me. They circled to the ground. And there before my eyes, stark and silent, lay the Martians with the hungry birds pecking and tearing brown shreds of flesh their dead bodies. Later, when their bodies were examined in laboratories, it was found that they were killed by the 
putrefactive and disease bacteria against which their systems were unprepared. Plain, after all, man's defenses had failed. By the humblest thing that God, as wisdom, has put upon this earth. So, just like in the H.G. Wells novel, it wasn't the military, but rather earthly microbes that brought an end to the Martians' reign of terror in that 1938 radio broadcast. All that remains is an epilogue explaining the world's return to a peaceful existence, followed by an afterword by Orson Welles to assure the public it was all in good fun. How strange it now seems to sit in my peaceful study at Princeton, writing down this last chapter of the record, begun at a deserted farm in Grover's Mill. Strange to watch children playing in the streets. Strange to watch the sightseers enter the museum where the dissembled parts of a Martian machine are kept on public view. Strange when I recall the time when I first saw it. Bright and clean-cut, hard and silent under the dawn of that last great day. This is Orson Welles, ladies and gentlemen. Out of character, to assure you that the War of the Worlds has no further significance than as the holiday offering it was intended to be. The Mercury Theater's own radio version of dressing up in a sheet and jumping out of a bush and saying boo. We annihilated the world before your very ears and utterly destroyed the CBS. You will be relieved, I hope, to learn that we didn't mean it and that both institutions are still open for business. So goodbye, everybody, and remember, please, for the next day or so, the terrible lesson you learned tonight. That grinning, glowing, globular invader of your living room is an inhabitant of the pumpkin patch, and if your doorbell rings and nobody's there, that was no Martian. It's Halloween. We hope that no one listening to this show ran out into the streets in terror and that you've enjoyed this trip back to the golden age of radio and a famous Halloween broadcast. Thanks for joining us today on The Appleseed, where great stories change your family's world. Before we go, we wanted to say thank you to those of you who have taken the time to send an email to the show or leave us a thoughtful review on your favorite podcast platform. You can also engage with us on our social media channels. You can find this episode or any episode from our archive on the BYU Radio app at byuradio.org slash Appleseed or by Googling the Appleseed podcast. I'm Sam Payne, and I can't wait to be with you again on the Appleseed. Appleseed.